Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 233. We'll continue in the book of First Chronicles with a brief summary of chapters 8 through 11 and follow with some thoughts about how a director's cut can change everything. Having covered many of the lineages of the tribes in previous chapters, chapter 8 focuses on the tribe of Benjamin and its land holdings. This is meant to guide us down one particular branch of the family tree, the house of Shaul, the first king of Israel. We have earlier versions of this list in 1 Samuel chapters 9, 10, and 14, enumerating the children from Shaul's wife Achinoam, as well as the descendants from his concubine Ritzpah Bat Aya in 2 Samuel chapter 21. What's new here is that Shaul's line did not die out with Shaul and his son Yonatan. Chapter 9 gives us some more list to chew on. Quote, and all Israel trace their lineage, and look, they are written down in the book of kings of Israel and Judah. They were exiled to Babylonia because of their betrayal. This time, however, the list is of the first settlers to return post-Cyrus proclamation. With chapter 10, we begin our story for reals with... The establishment of the house of David. We hear it before we can see it. The sounds of battle then fade in on the hills of Gilboa as we see the forces of Israel scattering. The Philistines have prevailed, quote, and the battle went heavy against Saul and the archers with the bow found him. And he quaked in fear of the archers, and Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and abuse me. But the armor-bearer did not want to do it because he was very frightened. And Saul took the sword and fell upon it, and Saul died, and his three sons and all his house together died. And as Shaul predicted, the Philistines did indeed abuse his corpse, quote, And they put his armor in the house of their god, and his skull they impaled in the house of Dagon. And all of the inhabitants of Yavesh-Gilad heard what the Philistines had done to Saul. And every valiant man arose, and they bore off Saul's corpse and the corpses of his sons, and brought them to Yavesh, and buried their bones beneath the tamarisk in Yavesh, and they fasted seven days. Now why did all of this befall Saul? The chronicler tells us, quote, And Saul died for his betrayal that he had committed against Adonai, for the word of Adonai that he did not keep, and he had inquired too of a ghost, and he did not seek Adonai, and he put him to death and brought round the kingship to David, son of Jesse. Chapter 11 marks the pivot to David with the people gathering in Hebron to swear allegiance to the son of Yishai. Quote, Look, your bone and your flesh are we. Time and again in the past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel into the fray. And Adonai, your God, said, It is you who will shepherd my people Israel, and it is you who will be the prince over my people Israel. David is anointed king over all of Israel by Shmuel, and he moves to establish a unified capital for all the people. In Jerusalem, which is at this stage known as Yavus, part of a Jebusite enclave sandwiched between the tribal lands of Judah and Benjamin, David's forces approach, and the Jebusites taunt him, quote, You don't frighten us, English pig dogs! Go and boil your bottom, sons of a silly person. I'll blow my nose at you, so-called Arthur King. You and all your silly English can 
The original version has the Jebusites mention something about the blind and the lame, but the chronicler tightens the tale with David rallying his men with, quote, whoever strikes down the Jebusite first shall be chief and commander. Yoav answers the call and indeed strikes first, becoming David's chief of staff. Yavus becomes the city of David and, quote, he built the city round the rampart all around and Yoav restored the rest of the city and David grew greater and greater and Adonai of armies was with him. The remainder of the chapter enumerates David's heroes, the heads of his units, who comport themselves bravely in action, such as, quote, Yashavam, son of Chachmoni, head of the thirty, he brandished his spear over three hundred slain at a single time. Or, quote, Benayah, son of Yehoyada, son of a valiant man, great in deeds from Kavtzeel. He struck down the two sons of Ariel of Moab, and he went down and killed the lion in the pit on the day of the snow. And he struck down an Egyptian man, a man of daunting stature, five cubits tall, and a spear like a weaver's beam was in the hand of the Egyptian. And he went down to him with a staff and stole the spear from the hand of the Egyptian and killed him with his own spear. How glorious! Finally, some action. And what action we get, we're dropped onto Mount Gilboa, where, quote, the Philistines battled against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, and they fell slain. This is the moment from 1 Samuel chapter 31, where all is lost for Shaul and Israel. Shaul, fearing the abuse he will surely suffer at the hands of the Philistines, urges his armor bearer to run him through. In both accounts, the armor bearer is frightened and cannot act, and thus, before he falls into the hands of the enemy, he falls on his own sword and quote Saul died and his three sons and all his house together died the chronicler always has his eye on the family line and a good morality tale he does not disappoint after describing how the Philistines abused Shaul's corpse and the heroic efforts of the people of Yavish Gilad to rescue the remains and give Shaul a proper burial, the chronicler reminds us that, quote, Shaul died for his betrayal that he had committed against Adonai for the word of Adonai that he did not keep. And he had inquired too of a ghost and he did not seek Adonai and he put him to death and brought round the kingship to David, son of Jesse. And so the plot quickly moves on to David, the new king and his coronation in Hebron, etc., etc. This is a big departure from the source material, for if we hearken back to the end of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel, what's missing is the subplot with the son of the Amalekite sojourner. In the book of Samuel, the news of the defeat on Mount Gilboa has reached David at Tziklag, not via tweet or text, but from the mouth of a survivor of the massacre. Quote, look, a man was coming from the camp from Saul, his garments torn and earth on his head. And it happened when he came to David that he fell to the ground and did obeisance. The man proceeds to spin a yarn about how he happened to be on the Mount Gilboa and Shaul was wallowing, impaled on his spear. And when he caught sight of the man, he called him over and said, quote, Pray stand over me and finish me off, for the fainting spell has seized me, for while life is still within me. And of course, the man complies and finishes off Shaul and brings Shaul's diadem and armband to David as evidence of the deed. Well, David is destroyed by the news. He tears his cloak, keens and weeps and fasts until evening. Then he turns to the man, who is now described as a lad, 
and makes what seems like small talk. So where are you from, etc. But then things turn and turn fast. Quote, How were you not afraid to reach out your hand to do violence to Adonai's anointed? At which point, David calls one of his own lads to come in and stab the guy. You got what you deserve. And then David sits down to sing a proper song of lament for Shaul and Yonatan, which the author of 2 Samuel tells us, quote, Look, it is written down in the book of Yashar. The song is elegiac and beautiful. Its words capture the pain and love David had for his beloved Yonatan and the man he once admired, even until the end. Israel's first king, Shaul. When Akira Kurosawa wrote the screenplay for what would become his 1985 film, Ron, he was not a stranger to Shakespeare adaptations. His earlier 1957 film, Throne of Blood, transposed the plot of Macbeth to feudal Japan. However, in subsequent interviews about Ron, Kurosawa said that he only realized the similarities between his then-unproduced screenplay and Shakespeare's tragedy during pre-production. Ron tells the story of Hidetora Ichimonji, an aging Sengoku-era warlord, who decides to step down as ruler and divide his kingdom between his three sons, Taro, Jiro, and Saburo. As Hidetora explains, Taro, the eldest son, will receive the prestigious first castle and become leader of the Ichimonji clan, while Jiro and Saburo will receive the second and third castles and support their older brother. Hidetora will, however, retain the title of Great Lord. What ensues is Ran, which literally means chaos. Ran's story was inspired by the Sengoka-era warlord Mori Motonari, the 16th century warlord whose three sons are admired in Japan as paragons of filial virtue. Kurosawa wanted to explore an alternative universe where the sons were less than virtuous. Only then, Kurosawa said, did he realize that this exploration had already been undertaken by William Shakespeare in the early 1600s. But since his story was to be set in medieval Japan, the protagonist's children had to be men. To divide a realm among daughters would have been unthinkable. Now, we've talked about King Lear before in episode 222. There I spoke of the king out on the heath. Here, I speak of what came well before that and how Kurosawa sought to address that problem. What I mean, and it's not just something that troubled me, countless critics in Kurosawa it troubled them as well and, and not in that order, is how we're kind of thrust into the action without any knowledge of what came before. The past and the future is a, a joke to me now. When we meet Lear, Cordelia, Reagan, Goneril, we know nothing of them. We know nothing of Edmund and Gloucester. We just get the web of relations. You know, this one's the parent, that one's the child, this one's the lord, that one's the liege, master, servant, husband, wife, host, guest. But as Kurosawa also identified in an interview he gave at the film's U.S. premiere, the New York Film Festival, quote, As much as I love Shakespeare, Lear has always been a play that I have found extremely dissatisfying. From the Japanese point of view, Lear doesn't seem to have any reflection on his past. If he begins in a position of such great power, and then he goes mad because his daughters turn against him, there has to be a reason, and the only reason must lie in his past behavior. He must have been a terrible tyrant to get where he is at the beginning of the play, and his daughters must have learned from him. 
So in addition to tweaking the story of Mori Motonari, inadvertently aligning it with Lear, Kurosawa also tweaks the story of Lear. He folds the cumbersome bastard subplot of Gloucester into the Lear plot. In so doing, he shifts the focus away from the eternal, almost universal conflict and rivalry between good and evil embodied in Shakespeare by sibling relationships. There's legitimate Edgar versus the illegitimate Edmund. Lear understands his daughter's behavior as being driven by cosmic forces. Quote, You see me here, you gods, a poor old man, as full of grief as age, wretched in both. If it be you that stirs these daughters' hearts against their father, fool me not so much to bear it tamely. For Kurosawa, it is not in the stars, but in the hearts of men. Hidetora took the three castles he now plans to give to his sons by brutal force. Lady Kaida, his son Taro's wife, was forced to marry after Hidetora killed her whole family before her eyes. Jiro's wife, Lady Sue, also had a similar story. Hidetora massacred her entire family except for her and her brother Tsurumaru, whom Hidetora gave the choice of blindness or death. These changes make Kurosawa's cut more backward-looking. We better understand what's happening now because of what happened in the past. Shakespeare is forward-looking. Lear's insistence that his daughters formally declare their love for him determines what will happen next. Whichever emphasis one prefers is a matter of taste, but it highlights how the decisions made by the director can change how we, the audience, might process the performance. Oh, I see. The Chronicler is no different. In his cut, he removes the whole subplot with David ordering the execution of the Amalekite lad. It excises the painful and public mourning and the song of lament that rings out across the ages. Like Kurosawa and Shakespeare, the Chronicler wants to shift the direction. In 2 Samuel, all those column inches dedicated to the story of what might have transpired on Mount Gilboa grounds us in the tumult of succession and the grubby, bloody, mud-caked present. Did the Amalekite lag actually kill Shaul, or was he scavenging on the battlefield and came across the king's diadem and armband and think, if I bring this to the new king, I will surely be rewarded. Okay, well, enjoy your prize. And if we look closely at the words of David, we sense that there is a little uncertainty about being God's anointed. Being God's chosen didn't prevent Shaul from being killed by a lowly scavenger, nor might it prevent anyone down the line from raising their hand against God's most recently anointed. The chronicler does not traffic in such worries. He moves quickly from Shaul's death and the end of his house to David and the unanimous clamoring of the people for him to be their king. There is no question, no worry, no songs of lament, just a song of celebration. Quote, it is you who will shepherd my people Israel and it is you who will be the prince over my people Israel. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. 
Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 234, when we continue in First Chronicles with chapters 12 through 15.